Jeremiah 24 tonight is our text. Jeremiah chapter 24. The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs! The good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good, for I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them, and I will not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Just note before we keep reading, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Seven I wills of God's intention concerning the nation of Israel just before they became a nation no more. Powerful. Verse 8. And as the evil figs which cannot be eaten... They are so evil. Surely thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt, and a curse in all the places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. Heavenly Father, tonight we pause before you to pray as we deal with this vision of two baskets of figs, some that are very, very good and some that are very, very bad. You used that vision of two baskets of figs to encourage the heart of your prophet and to set forth your plan, really, for the ages. And so tonight we pray that you would help us to grasp this short but poignant chapter and make applications to our own hearts in this particular period of time that is indeed recognized as a holiday period. We pray tonight that some of the applications will be particularly helpful to us as we navigate the next couple of weeks. And for that, we will praise you 
in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. Jeremiah 24 refines our understanding of God's goodness. The chapter helps us to understand that attribute of God, God is good. Jeremiah 24 is a vision of encouragement for Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu, as you know, is a faithful prophet of God who stands constantly in ministry walking upstream. And as a result of that, there's a weariness that is associated with such faithful ministry. Nonetheless, the vision of two baskets of figs is tremendously encouraging to Yirmiyahu when he receives it, as recorded here in Jeremiah 24. The vision of Jeremiah 24 concerning the good and bad figs brought before the Lord must be understood in the light of first fruits under the law. More about that in a moment. Now, there is a historical precedent to what we are reading here uh, in, uh, in Jeremiah 24. Uh, uh, facts, historical facts that immediately proceed uh, and complement some of the things that were told here in this 24th chapter of Jeremiah. And in order to get a hold of those historical facts tonight, uh, I want to begin with a little Bible reading. And so if you take your scriptures and turn with me back to 2 Kings and uh, chapter 24, we'll be reading from verse 12 to verse 16. And in 2 Kings 24, 12 to 16, we gain something of a historical perspective concerning what is taking place even as Jeremiah receives the vision of two fig baskets. 2 Kings 24, 12. And Jehoiashin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants and his princes and his officers, and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he, king of Babylon, carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captains, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them, the king of Babylon, brought captive to Babylon. 790, I'm sorry, 597. 2 Kings 24, 12 to 16 is recording the details of what took place in 597 
B.C. Previous to 597 B.C., God's prophet Jeremiah had watched as the first wave of the best and the brightest had been taken captive to Babylon. That would have been seven years before in 605 B.C. 605 B.C., Daniel. 605 B.C., Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. 605 B.C., uh, there was a brain drain out of Israel to the land of Babylon, and uh, the best and the brightest were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon to serve his purposes in the kingdom over there. But what we're reading about in 2 Kings 24, 12 to 16, and what we're reading about in Jeremiah 24 is the historical reality of 597 B.C. Ezekiel is gone from Israel, and Judah is further drained of her people and resources. All of the skilled craftsmen and all of the metalsmiths uh, were taken and will be used to create some of the world's most spectacular art and ornamentation. If you visit any art museum, especially uh, in the east or overseas, uh, you will have occasion to see some of the spectacular things uh, that came out of Iraq when Saddam Hussein fell. And some of the things that came out of there were the most beautiful, ornamental uh, works of art that have ever been made in all of humankind. Many of those works of art were fashioned by Jewish hands. Jewish craftsmen, Jewish metallurists were active under King Nebuchadnezzar in creating some of the world's greatest ornamentation, some of the world's greatest art. Simply, it is spectacular. The ancient artifacts and the treasures uh, that have come out of Iraq and some that remain in Iraq today bear evidence of the Jewish influence and skill dating back to the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah receives of the Lord at that precise time this vision of two baskets of figs, one delightful and fresh, the other absolutely rotten. One of the things that intrigues me in my first reading of this chapter was the use of the word naughty. I don't ever think about naughty melons or naughty oranges or naughty, naughty apples. I think about naughty people, uh, but I don't think about naughty fruit. But nonetheless, the Bible has the word naughty for us in the King's English describing the rotten figs. They were so bad, so yucky, so slimy, so yuck. If you know anything about figs, they really are yuck city when indeed they go rotten. And uh, so you have a basket of fresh, uh, ripe uh, figs, and you have another basket of absolutely naughty or bad uh, figs. Uh, Jeremiah receives of the Lord this vision, which reveals the plan of God for the Jewish people going forward. And that plan of God that is revealed by the vision of the two baskets of figs encourages the heart of the faithful prophet greatly. 
in spite of all of the angst, in spite of all of the sorrow, in spite of all of the negativity that is a part of Jeremiah's experience living in the shutdown days in the nation of Judah, Jeremiah has from the Lord in this vision something that is just absolutely encouraging. Two fig baskets, one very big and one very good, I should say, and the other one very bad, are used to convey God's thinking and God's plan. The baskets are pictured as being brought before the Lord as an offering and placed before the Lord at the temple. The Jewish worshiper brought the first fruits to the temple as required by the law of God in a fashion exactly as depicted here concerning these two baskets of figs. Now, no Jewish worshiper would ever bring a basket of rotten figs before the Lord. But when the Lord tells the story, that is what he describes in order to uh, depict, as it were, something that is going to help us understand the way that God is going to deal with his ancient people. Now, for the law of first fruits, it's important that we see the biblical precedent uh, for this particular depiction in Jeremiah 24. So another little reading assignment tonight that we'd like to complete before we move along. Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy and chapter 26, verses 1 through 11, will give to us uh, the responsibility of the pre presentation of first fruits under the law of God as delivered by Moses. Deuteronomy 26. And it shall be when thou art come into or unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possesseth it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall put it in a basket, and shall go unto the place where the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. That would be the tabernacle at the first, and then ultimately the temple. Verse 3, And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God, that I am come unto the country which the Lord swear unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid on upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with a great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth 
with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me, and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in every good. Every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thy house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. That law of first fruits demanded the worshiper to present before the Lord his offering mindfully. When he presented his offering before the Lord mindfully, he was to have two things as the focus of his mind and the focus of his heart. First of all, he was to have on his mind and heart the deliverance, the great past deliverance of the nation of Israel out of the bondage in Egypt by the mighty hand of God. And the second thing that he was to have on his heart and his mind was the all-encompassing attribute of God's goodness. He was not only to present his fruit, first fruits, as a testimony to God's goodness, but he was to take the occasion of first fruits to underscore the truth of God's goodness. So first fruits was intended to invoke two thoughts. One, God is the deliverer of Israel. Two, God is good to us and good to me. Two thoughts, God has delivered us. Thought number two, God is good to us and good to me. Good to us, good to me. Good to us, good to me. Those are the thoughts that are demanded of the worshiper who presents before the Lord his first fruits. Back to Jeremiah 24, the vision involves uh, a depiction of two baskets laid before the Lord as an offering. We could call it a first fruits offering. One is exactly as you'd expect it to be, uh, the, the first ripened fruit set before the Lord, reminiscent of God's deliverance and reminiscence of God's goodness. The other one, a basket of yuck, slimy, greasy, dark, and deteriorating yuck. A basket of bad, a basket of naughty, as the old English says it. Now that vision of two baskets involves, ultimately, our understanding of the justice of God in accepting one basket and rejecting the other basket. Not surprisingly, God accepts the good. God rejects the bad. Not hard to think about that. Not hard to figure that out. Accept the good. Reject the bad. I bring you two baskets of apples. One basket of apples is fresh. Fresh picked from the tree. All cleaned up and ready to go for individual eating or for somebody's apple pie. And the other basket is all the yucky, rotten fruit that dropped off the tree and was half eaten by deers and squirrels. And so you have two baskets. 
What would you do with the two baskets? You can have your choice. Which one would you choose? Would you choose the good or would you choose the bad? Well, of course, you choose the good. So does God. God receives the good. God rejects the bad. Taking the whole of the vision serves us well when we consider some of the blessed, illustrated New Testament truths that flow out of it. The action and attitudes of God, as portrayed back in Jeremiah 24, are exactly the same actions and attitude of God uh, today. What encouraged Jeremiah back in the day should surely encourage us. Some New Testament texts that are illustrated by this vision of two baskets are passages like Romans 8.28, Philippians 2.13, and Hebrews 12.11. I want us to take those verses tonight and look at them by way of application of this chapter, Jeremiah 24. Let's see the application together and to take from it uh, something of Jeremiah-like encouragement for our own souls tonight as the people of God. Romans 8.28 talks about the good guarantee of God. Uh, I'm sure that a number of you know that verse by heart, but we printed it on your study outline, and if you look at that study outline for just a moment, we should be able to read the verse together. Romans 8.28, let's say it together. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 is a beloved New Testament verse of Scripture. Let's see if we can better understand Romans 8.28 by looking at Jeremiah 24. God, in the vision of Jeremiah 24, acknowledges the captives. He acknowledges people like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. He acknowledges the people that were taken out of their homeland and now are living in hostile territory. God says, verse 5, that he has regard for them. Look at that. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. The first thing that we see is that God acknowledges the captives taken away into a land of exile, and we would say, based upon this clear declaration of God, that no particular reason is given as to why he acknowledges whom he acknowledges. It's God's will to acknowledge them, or it's God's will not to acknowledge them. The choice is his. They don't deserve acknowledgement, yet God says in verse 5, I am going to acknowledge them. I am going to pay attention to them. I'm going to do something with them, and to them, and in them. In fact, God purposely sets his protective eyes upon them for 
good. Look at verse 6. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good. God said that those people that were taken away captive, that God was going to not only acknowledge them, but that God was going to set his protective eyes upon them for their good. Now the good that God has in mind concerning those people living in exile involves four things. First, they will be restored to the place of God's intention. Notice, I will bring them again to this land. Secondly, they will grow and develop while in enemy territory. I will build them and not pull them down. Thirdly, it says I will plant them and not pluck them up. They will be given the full capacity to know God intimately, to have relationship with God. They'll be planted in the Lord, a people for his namesake. They will enjoy a mutual, wholehearted relationship with God without end. Verse 7, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now that is God's promise and work concerning people like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And if you want to understand Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good to them that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose, all you have to do is think about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and then you understand exactly what Romans 8.28 actually involves. It involves God setting his protective eyes upon us when we don't deserve it. It involves God working so that everything in our life ends up being for his glory and our ultimate good. Romans 8.28 is a phenomenal expression illustrated by Jeremiah 24. The truth of Romans 8 follows the same thought development. God calls purposefully a people for his namesake. He regards his own for seeing them lovingly. God sets or makes everything fall in place for good. The good involves growth in the knowledge of the Lord. The good involves increase in relationship with God, even while living in hostile territory. And the ultimate promise of sustained intimate relationship with God and that forever. There's not a person who came here tonight that doesn't know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. There's not a single person here tonight that doesn't know uh, the biblical story of the three Hebrew children 
uh, renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, the Bible is very clear. It doesn't say that the fiery furnace was good. It doesn't say that the lion's den was good. You know that. There's nothing good about th being thrown into the lion's den. There's nothing good about being thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, uh, by anybody's measuring stick of operation, there's nothing good in that at all. Why, it's bad that they get in trouble for honoring the Lord. Why, well, it's bad that they would get in trouble for worshiping the Lord. But isn't it wonderful how God worked all things together for good to those that loved him, that were called by him according to his purpose. I'm telling you honestly, sometimes when I hear God's people talk about the goodness of God, I could puke. Because they're so glib. They make it sound like God is just blind and doesn't know how bad our aches and pains are, how bad our sicknesses and diseases are. Sometimes they hear people say, God is good. Well, I got four flat tires, but God is good. I'm telling you, that kind of logic, it just strikes me as stupid. And God's people can be so stupid because they, they feel like they got to throw in there that God is good, when in fact, it stinks what is happening in our nation right now. It stinks what's happening in the state of Michigan right now. Why, some of the things that God's people are enduring is anything but good. We have people in the hospital this weekend. We have people that have spent extended hours in the emergency room, and while they're home tonight, they spent all day in the emergency room yesterday. We have people that we know are very near the time of their death. And we have people that we are quite confident are going to live for a long time. That, that might not be true either. Listen, you and I ought to think right about the goodness of God. The goodness of God doesn't mean that his people don't experience lion's dens. It doesn't mean that his people don't experience the fiery furnace. We recently re reviewed the details of the fiery furnace with the children's class, and I always am blessed by the attitude of those three Hebrew children because when they say to the authorities in power that they will not bow before the image set up by Nebuchadnezzar, they do not presume upon God to deliver them. What they say, if you read the account in Daniel 6, is that they say, we know God is able to deliver us from the furnace, and if not, oh well, we'll be safe and secure with the Lord forever. They did not presume upon the fact that the, that the fires would not uh, burn their flesh. Quite the contrary. They believed that God could do whatever God had decided to do, whatever was determined to do for the glory of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three fellows who understood Romans 8.28 hundreds upon hundreds of years before Paul wrote it. 
They understood that God can take the worst of circumstance and move it and change it and turn it so that it ends up being that which favors God's own people whom he has acknowledged. When I think about the fact that God has acknowledged me, when I think about the fact that God has acknowledged you, it really commends in my soul a sense of encouragement, a sense of confidence. It isn't a promise that we'll never go through stinky times. It's not a promise that we will not endure difficulties of water and fire. It is indeed a promise that no matter what we endure in this earthly lifetime, that God will turn it and twist it and work it so that ultimately it adds up for our betterment and growth and increase in relationship with God. That's what Jeremiah is being told by the vision of the two uh, uh, fig baskets. And that's the truth that comes in application to us when we get to Romans 8.28. Quickly, Philippians 2.13. Again, it's in your bulletin. Let's read it together. Philippians 2.13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 reminds us that God actively works according to his own pleasure. He does what pleases him. God set the captives here in Jeremiah 24. He sent the captives in bondage purposefully. He was pleased to do that. Why, we might quibble with God and say, God, why would you be pleased to do such a thing? Look at the phrase in verse 5. Again, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. It was somehow good for Daniel to be sent away from home. It was somehow good for Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael to be sent away from home, even though they were young men. And I know they terribly missed their parents. It was good to the pleasure of God. Why, that verse in context has so much to teach us about God working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. The New Testament says that God works within you for good. Your goodness is secured by God's will. Your goodness is secured by God's work. Have you ever used the phrase, my goodness? Oh, my goodness. Sherry does. Sherry says that from time to time around the house, and I always say the same thing. She always says, oh, my goodness. And I would say, you know you're not good, woman. <laughs> so I say to her. I say that every time. You know you're not good, woman. Uh, because uh, ultimately, uh, our goodness, when all added up, stocked up, 
uh, piled up, presented to God, is as, according to the Bible, filthy rags. All our goodness, all our righteousness, is as filthy rags. But Sherry and I can talk about goodness, so can you, because God, who is good, is working in her life, working in my life, working in your life. God's promise is not just good around us, but good within us by his sovereign will and work. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are to actively cooperate with God, be a laborer together with God by working out what he has worked in. He has worked into us the blessedness of salvation, and we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm just saying that Jeremiah 24 beautifully illustrates, Romans 8, 28, it beautifully illustrates Philippians 2 and 13. Uh, thirdly tonight, and it's our last verse of the New Testament, we'll reference Hebrews 12, 11. And that, of course, is a statement of God's disciplinary process in the life of a believer. And so let's read that together. Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Have you ever been exercised by your father? Have you ever been exercised by your uh, mother? Uh, if you are a creative parent, instead of saying to the kid next time, you're going to get a spanking, mister, you might say, I'm going to exercise you, because that's the biblical way of saying it. Uh, God exercises his children. Uh, with uh, Jeremiah 24 in mind, especially verses 8 through 10, God was absolutely committed to ridding the ancient land of bad figs. Look at verse 8. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in the land, and then that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword and the famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. God was absolutely committed uh, to ridding the ancient land of bad figs. Now, the most significant and direct application of that in the New Testament is that God is absolutely committed to ridding the earth of sin and death. Think of that. God has made a promise, and he is, with all of his almighty power, absolutely committed to ridding the entire earth of sin and death. And because God is absolutely committed to ridding the entire earth of sin and death, 
you and I should know as believers that God is absolutely committed to ridding your life of sin. Chastening is not enjoyable. But the result of chastening is peace and fruit. And peace and fruit is very enjoyable. Jeremiah, in the vision of two baskets, was led by God to know that God was not only going to do something by way of salvation to the captive people that had been taken out of the land, but that God was also going to deal justly in his wrath over sin and death with those that had rejected him. Jeremiah had to take comfort in the fact that God was just to judge sinful Judah and that his promise of peace and fruit afterward would be secure. We too must take comfort in this as it relates to our individual lives. God is absolutely committed to ridding my life of sin. God is absolutely committed to ridding your life of sin. If you want to know what God's up to in your life, that would be it. God intends to present you holy and blameless before his own throne in glory very soon. And God is up to the work of ridding sin out of you. Last spring, we did a study in the instruction hour uh, when we first heard about COVID. Uh, We did a study in the instruction hour uh, of the significant correspondences between the connections of the Old Testament and the New. The old worn statement is, the New Testament is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. The New Testament is in the Old Testament contained. The Old Testament is in the New explained. More than that, since God is ever the same. We've been singing now for a number of months. We actually sang it for the last time this morning. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. God is the same in all generations. The way that he did work with his people, Jeremiah 24 gives us a good indication of how he does work with his people, even those of us that are part of the Lord's church. Now, we are careful to make distinctions of peoples and goals and promises, but there is a profound continuity with God and his earthly people in all generations. Therefore, based upon the clear communication of Jeremiah 24, I can say the following to you. We are a people in exile. This is not our home. Yet God has willed that we should fall under his protective eye and grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord while living and serving in hostile territory. You and I live 
you and I serve the Lord in hostile territory. Living and serving in hostile territory means that some of God's people are sick tonight. Even though God is good to us and God is good to them. And God is working good for us and for them. Living in exile means that the circumstances around us can certainly be bad, really bad, really stink. Even as God is good to us and working good for us, good to me and working good for me. Never say it glibly. Never say it in a goofy manner. God is good. Never quickly go from the recognition of something that everybody would say, that's terrible, cancer, that's terrible, hospital, that's terrible, death in a family, that's terrible. Don't ever go so quickly from that to God is good, God is good, God is good. Of course he is good. He's good to us. He's good to me. God is good to us. He's good to me. God works good out for us all. And on that basis, we bless his holy name. And we take our encouragement from what God has purposed to do for us, even as he purposed to do for the captives of Judah, in the days of Jeremiah. Now it's interesting because Jeremiah wasn't captive. He remained with the poorest of the people. If you look just real quickly at the aspect of the verses that we read, you'll see that in the context of that uh, reality of the people left behind, uh, that they are uh, not only going to be a, a reproach and a, a proverb and a taunt and a curse, but you will note that they are the poorest of the people left behind. And yet, God had a plan for them, the poor ones left behind. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for those are the kingdom of God. Jeremiah was among the poor ones left behind and ultimately made his way to Egypt as relief from the difficulties that were taking place in Jerusalem after the days of his prophetic ministry were finished. But Jeremiah, in this vision of two figs, two baskets of figs, was reminded of this truth. God is good to us. God is good to me. God is working all things for good. For us, those that love him, those that are the called according to his purpose. Bless his holy name. Father, tonight we are so encouraged to think about your acknowledgement of us, to think about your will to bring us to yourself, to plant us in Christ, and to develop us and build us a people for your namesake. Why, your divine determination concerning us is ever bit as sure as your divine determination 
for the ancient captives of Judah after they had been stolen away by the king of Babylon. Lord, encourage us this week. Encourage us as we meet together with some of our family members. Encourage us as we finish out the work week. Encourage us as we interact with people during this holiday season. Encourage your people with the truth that you have your eye upon us for good, that you have worked for our good, that you will indeed work for our good and for my good and for the good of those that love you to those that are called according to your purpose and according to your pleasure. Thank you, Lord, for having us in mind. Thank you, Lord, for the eternal plan in Christ Jesus. May our singing reminder tonight at the end of this hour that you are on the throne, remembering your own. May it encourage us until we come together there again. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Let's stand together as we